Hey, folks, Duncan Kinney here to remind you that the Progress Report is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. And three new awesome podcasts have just joined Harbinger. And the one I want to highlight is called Pullback, featuring Kyla Hewson and Kristen Pugh. Their first episode with Harbinger is a fun and zesty look at one of the biggest causes of today's problems, monopolies. They discuss the history of monopolies, why antitrust law isn't working, and how monopolies hurt democracy. Now, with that out of the way, let's get on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording today here in Amiskwichiwa Skygun, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory on the banks of the Kasiskasawanasipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is returning champion Bridget Sterling. Bridget is a former school trustee with the Edmonton Public School Board and a PhD candidate on educational policy studies at the University of Alberta. Bridget, welcome back. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Well, as as well as it can be expected in the middle of, you know, COVID and a climate crisis. But, you know, personally, my life's pretty good. Yes. Yeah, that's good to hear. I mean, how are you personally fending off the doom? Uh, you know, I am just, I'm, I'm working from home. I recently, I'm late to the game, but I recently started watching Drag Race. And that is definitely lifting my spirits. Uh, you know, I hang out with my cat. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's... Um, it's gone okay. All right. Well, and also big congrats on being an ex-politician. I imagine that uh, it does a lot for your mental health as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it. Um, I described it to someone yesterday as feeling like I, before, like all of the issues around education were kind of constantly punching me in the face. And now like I'm still super involved in them. My research is in education, but now I can kind of have that space to, to look at things, to do my work. And like, I, it's been like a few months now since somebody called me and like gave me a threatening phone call or sent me a furious email. So it's really taken a lot of stress off. That's good to hear. So the reason I've, we've got you on today is, you know, the issue that is of course on everyone's mind, you know, COVID-19, the Omicron variant and specifically what it is doing to our schools now that schools are back and in-person learning is is taking place again after the extended winter break. You know, Jason Kenney and Adriana Lagrange looked around at the information, at the rising case counts, at Omicron, Omicron sweeping through the province, and they gave that extra week off. And they used that extra week off to do what exactly to make schools safer? Uh, they they sent out some really iffy masks. Uh, if you if you see pictures of them that people have been posting online, people are getting uh, Ziploc bags of masks uh, of of these you know the blue medical masks. Everyone knows what those look like now, but and apparently some schools with elementary kids are have been shipped only adult size masks, which is great mm. if you're familiar with six year olds. You know, adult size masks are great for six year olds. Um, and actually, the rapid antigen tests the the rapid tests are only starting to show up. Uh, AHS has said that they'll be shipping the rest of them to schools this week. But, you know, they get to the school division, then they've got to go out on the truck mail or whatever to the schools. So I think a lot of parents aren't going to be seeing those tests coming home with their kids until next week sometime. Uh, And, you know, lots of lots of thoughts and prayers and exciting, uh, you know, enthusiastic statements from our education minister that uh, 
kids are going to get back to school and it's going to be great. But we're so far, it's looking pretty rough. Yes, not only are they getting, you know, a few masks, uh, some rapid antigen tests that uh, are going to show up at some point, but haven't showed up yet. Thoughts and prayers. But also, uh, the school system is blessed with no more PCR testing. Essentially, that's only reserved for like medical workers or people with high risk medical problems. Uh, essentially, contact tracing is done. Like, I don't even know if they're trying anymore or if there are people who are employed as contract tracers who are still doing that job. Like, it's it's that seems to have kind of utterly collapsed, you know, again, um, you know, notification of parents of whether there was like COVID positive people or students in the classroom doesn't seem to be taking anymore, doesn't seem to be taking place anymore. Um, you know, the, there used to be rules around shutting down classrooms and moving to online learning. If there was a, a massive outbreak, that rule has essentially been revoked and whether a school goes to online learning or not is kind of purely discretionary now. Am I missing uh, anything else that is that is <laughs> not happening in regards to keeping kids safe at schools? Yeah, I mean, families aren't getting that notification. And the other piece of that, of course, is that uh, those AHS investigations in schools won't be happening anymore. So there's going to be no AHS coming in to do any sort of looking at what's happening with an outbreak, anything like that. Like it's just school divisions are now flying on their own, basically, um, you know, except for, of course, it's still going to be the same situation where um, if a school division wants to move classes online, they still have to get permission from the minister to do that, which is uh, a serious issue. Uh, there's still no, no local autonomy for school divisions to make those choices for themselves. Um, and that problem with not having PCR tests anymore is that now it's schools only know if there's a COVID case if parents self-report. And we're in this situation where those rapid tests haven't come home yet from schools. And, you know, I think most people know that in the last few weeks, the, the rapid tests that were available through pharmacies for people to pick up have been, you know, it's been like finding gold to, to get a, a box of rapid tests a lot of the time. And so a lot of families don't have those rapid tests at home. So, you know, children are showing symptoms, but often there's not even you know, the, the family doesn't have even have the ability to test and some families may not be testing uh, and then it, whether or not they even choose to report or if they just call their child in sick and they don't say what's going on. So it's really hard to even get a picture of it. Um, you know, it's a real mess for school divisions, but um, Edmonton Public actually, and, and I hope more school divisions are going to do this across the problem or province, Edmonton Public decided to proactively uh, start posting their numbers online. So um, you know, they've got a couple days worth of data up already and it's already looking really messy. So if you look mm -hmm. at it. I mean, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, what effects on the school system have we seen so far? What is the data that we just from the two days back, the two and a half days back, what are we, what have we seen already? Yeah. So, so on Monday you saw about 3% of kids in Edmonton public out for, other illness, and then 1.5% of those reporting as COVID. And again, how many of those kids who are just off sick and have COVID but don't have access to testing or haven't tested positive? Because rapid tests don't always pick things up right away, and you can get false negatives. So there's about 1.5% on Monday. Now, yesterday, you saw 3.5% um, of kids so uh, up off with other illness and 1.8% or so off with COVID. And that sounds small, but in a division the size of Edmonton Public, what you're talking about is, you know, 
on Monday, you saw about 4,700 kids off sick. Uh, and then Tuesday, 5,600 kids off sick. Like that's the equivalent of a couple of big high schools off sick just from the first two days of school. And those kids are now, they've just come back. They're all mingling in the classroom. So I think we're going to start to see those numbers climbing pretty quickly through the week and into next week. So that's for the kids. And it's actually even worse when you start to look at staff. So you look at the staffing, like yesterday, Tuesday, uh, you had in Edmonton Public, they had 494 teachers out. um, And 36 of those they couldn't fill with substitute teachers. And they've moved to something that they did, Edmonton Public did last year too, which was hiring um, supply teachers on basically on, on temporary contracts. So they're still sort of working as supply teachers, but they get hired on full-time to guarantee their availability. So they've hired on 29, basically like full-time subs. So they're, they're paid like a full-time teacher and they're available basically every day to go and sub because otherwise people are on the sub list and they just get called and they get to choose whether or not they take the job. Hmm. So, so it's to ensure it's available. And what gets even worse is when you look at educational assistance. So yesterday, Edmonton Public had 262 EAs out sick, and 125 of those absences were unfilled. So you think about that disproportionate impact on kids with disabilities, right? Those students who need those, you know, various reasons have those additional support needs in schools. And, you know, almost half of those kids um, whose EAs were away yesterday didn't have somebody else come in to offer them that support in the classroom. So that's a, again, we're seeing this disproportionate impact on kids with disabilities in schools. And yes, just to remind everyone, we are two days in to kids being back in school. It is now the third day. And uh, yeah, like we are, they're struggling to staff the schools. They the massive amount of students simply are sick. And like if Dina Hinshaw says, you know, is doing press conferences where she says, if you're sick right now, it's probably COVID. Like anyone staying home sick right now probably has COVID. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there, there are some other things floating around out there, but again, there's been because of COVID measures, there's been very few influenza cases. You know, I do know a few people who've had, a different cold that isn't COVID, but but most people who are getting sick right now, it's COVID. And so we can think about that with those kids who are out sick. Probably most of those kids are COVID too. Yeah. And so like, let's think this through. Like, what are the consequences, the possible consequences of letting COVID just run wild through schools with like very little mitigation efforts, essentially like what we're seeing now? So there's short-term consequences, right? And the short-term consequences are that, once again, schools are going to be back on this COVID roller coaster because eventually you get to a point in a school where you have enough staff members out sick or enough percentage of the population of students out sick, you can't run the school, right? Especially if you if you lose enough staff in a school, you can't, you can't operate the school, um, even if you've got supply teachers who can come in. So that's a short-term effect. And kids go back into that same cycle that we've seen since, you know, 2020, which is this, you know, online home isolating back in schools, back and forth, you know, shifting that is really disruptive to kids learning, right? It really destabilizes. So short term, we have that like back on the COVID roller coaster, the impact on students learning. The other piece of this that's really concerning is we still don't understand um, how many kids are getting long COVID and how long that will last, right? So some of those kids who get long COVID, you know, who have continuing symptoms, 
they might recover eventually, but we may be looking at who knows how many of the kids who are getting long COVID um, experiencing permanent disability, right? And so when we think back to polio, for example, it was actually a very, very small percentage of children who got polio who ended up with permanent paralysis. Well, we took that really seriously, right? And they closed schools, they closed swimming pools, they did all kinds of things. But we're now in the situation where, um, you know, instead of doing those things that we did historically to protect kids, instead, we're just going to, it's, it would have been like people in the fifties shrugging and letting polio just run rampant through the schools. Cause most kids are fine. Like that's what it feels like right now. We just, we don't know what the permanent impacts on children are going to be from, from COVID infection. And, and the problem with long COVID is people are getting it even from relatively mild infections. I know a few people who are living with it now and some of those people didn't get that sick initially, but they're now dealing with consequences months or in one case that I know of, you know, they got sick quite early in the pandemic and they're still dealing with long COVID now. So, yeah, like I don't think we have really grokked the fact that like, oh, if like 1% of the population ends up on long-term disability or has some type of long-term disability from COVID, like that's really fucking bad actually. <laughs> like yeah. for society. Well, you think about the lifelong impact on a child, right? Like you've got a kid who's gets infected at eight years old, ends up with long COVID. Like, you know, that's a lifetime of of a f- impact on that child, right? And we, yeah, and we just don't know. We don't know what we don't know about how long COVID works and what its long-term effects are. Like this infection is literally from 2019. You know what I mean? Like we just don't know. And then, I mean, I think the other big thing is that like, this is going to drive infection to other places. Like the fact that the schools are such a soup for COVID just means that like, they're going to get their parents sick. They're going to get their friends sick. They're going to get the kids they play soccer or gymnastics or go to gymnastics with sick. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's going to drive further infection throughout the people that the, the schools are just going to be like the nexus point for infections. Yeah. And when you look at um, the AHS claims around COVID in schools, right? So, so what, Hinshaw has said is that, you know, one case in a school, if there's been school transmission, they've seen two cases result from it. But what she doesn't say, and that that was that was when we were still dealing with wild type COVID, right? Like this is before we started dealing with, you know, Omicron, which is just off the charts for um, how quickly it spreads. But if you're looking at those two cases, the thing that she doesn't say in that is as soon as that child takes the case home and makes someone else in their household sick, they don't call that related to schools, right? They don't relate that case back to the school. That's no household transmission. It's tracked totally separately in the data. It's not revealed to people. Now I've heard rumors that there is some internal data that actually does show more of these connections, but whatever's what's reported out to the public, like the school-based cases are only the cases that took place in the school that were detected at the time. So it doesn't count, you know, that child went home, they made their parents sick, maybe their parent went to work while they, you know, before they started showing symptoms, they made people at work sick, and none of that, like, web out from the school, that transmission out to the community is being tracked. And there's no way it's not happening, right? Like, kids are not magically separate from their communities. Yeah, and, and we just don't know anymore because contact tracing has pretty much collapsed. And oh. and it's also worth pointing out that because going to school is mandatory in this province, you have to send your kids to school, there is a duty of care that the government has to ensure that it is a safe place. And do you think that the government is doing everything possible to make schools safe? 
Oh, they're absolutely not. Right. So, so what we know now, I mean, when we were in the spring of 2020, right, we were still thinking that this was, you know, based on touch, right? We were talking about fomite transmission, we were talking about droplets, right? So, you know, the the social distancing and the cleaning lots of high touch surfaces was the thing that, you know, was generally being the kind of guidance that people were being given. But we're now well into this pandemic where we know and we've got pretty clear data that that COVID is airborne, right? Like that is spreading through airborne transmission. But most of the guidance for schools is still based on this idea that we need to be cleaning surfaces. And as long as kids are six feet apart, there's no issues. Right? And this is just not how it actually is working. Right. So COVID is getting spread through ventilation systems. Right. The longer that people are breathing in a room together, you know, they're now saying, think of it like cigarette smoke. Right. It floats through the air. And so, you know, if you were in a room with somebody who's smoking and the windows were all closed and you didn't have ventilation, it's just going to build up in the room, right? And it's going to spread throughout the room. So we start seeing this in schools, but we haven't seen any action, any meaningful action from this government on ventilation systems. We haven't seen any meaningful action on um, providing better quality masks, right? So medical masks are great for stopping droplets. But if you actually look at what most of the experts on, you know, um, airborne viruses sort of talk about is that you need to you know, the things that stop droplet transmission aren't enough that you need to be upgrading masks. And we're not providing, you know, kids and teachers with upgraded masks. We're not providing, you know, KN95s or N95s or the KF94s, like these different high-grade masks. None of that's happening. We're just sending out some medical masks and keeping our fingers crossed. Mm. And so what are the odds? Like, what do you think the odds are that we will see another kind of like broad scale school shutdown like we've seen, I guess, twice now. Uh, yeah, actually, it's it's been more than that. Um, just thinking back, because we've also had like wild, wide scale shutdowns of, you know, high school and junior high. Um, I think I don't think it's far off. I think we're looking at probably in the next week or two, you're going to start seeing schools moving online. I don't know when we're going to see the whole system move online. I don't know if this government will do that again. Um, but you are going to start to see schools moving online pretty quickly here. If we continue to see the levels of absence among staff that are happening, there's no way it's not going to start closing schools. Yeah. And and I guess one of the big questions that I have, too, is like, why aren't there vaccination clinics in schools? This government seems to have uh, decided for whatever reason to simply decide not to have vaccination clinics in schools. This is despite the fact that AHS regularly vaccinates grades one people, uh, students in grades one, six, and three for a variety of things. <laughs> it just, but, but for COVID it's a non-starter for some reason. What are you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with this pressure from their base right around, um, the fear around, you know, oh, they're going to vaccinate my child without my consent. Well, no, schools schools are really, really careful about that. You know, they check the consent forms, all of those things. But um, the other piece, there's, there's some reasonable argument in having a parent present for the, the younger kids. Um, you know, there could be a lot of anxieties, for example, for kindergartners without a parent present. Um, but there are still ways you could have done that using schools. Um, that would have supported people accessing vaccines much more easily, um, especially for people who don't drive, right? So in other provinces, they've done things like they've done the vaccinations at the end of the school day. So when parents come for pickup time, 
you know, they can stay, they can do the vaccine clinic, and then they can go home, right? So it really reduces the barriers. You know, a lot of families come at the end of the day. Um, they're used to coming into the school. It's comfortable. There's kind of a social aspect to it then, too. You create this sort of pro-social thinking, right? Oh, look, everyone in my community is getting this done. I'm going to participate, too. You know, they're familiar with the staff in the school. There's a lot of reasons that it reduces barriers. And for people who don't drive or, you know, may not be able to get to one of these central clinics, it makes it a lot easier for people to get their child vaccinated because they're already going to the school. So it wouldn't hit every kid, but it would certainly reduce a lot of the barriers for families. Um, and we just haven't done that here. You know, instead, we're expecting people to go to central AHS sites where they have to book an appointment and the, the booking system's been messy. There's been some problems. And so it's just, it's like Alberta decided to make it as hard as we could for people to get kids vaccinated for COVID. Yes. The vaccination rates for kids five to 11 are not great. And they've been available since they've been available to kids nine to 11 or sorry, five to 11 since the end of November, beginning of December. Right. Yeah. And I think it's less than 5% of kids still are, have their two, have a second dose. And it's only about 40% of them that even have their first dose. So, you know, it's, it's really a problem. And I, and I, there's probably some hesitancy factor in there, but so much of that I think is, is about just it being really hard for families. Yeah. Access. It, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of Kenny pandering to the worst parts of his anti-vax base, let us go to the epicenter, the fucking like the, the gleaming hot, red hot eye of Jason Kenney's anti-vax base. And that is, of course, uh, LaCrete, Alberta. Um, there was a story that came out this weekend from CBC, uh, frankly, an incredible story. And I would argue pretty irresponsible journalism from CBC. The headline is health expert urges caution after blood testing firm claims, quote, pandemic is over, unquote, in Alberta Hamlet. And uh, I know you had a lot of thoughts about this online. I read it and my like eyes widened. Uh, I like before we get into the specifics, like what what jumped out at you from just purely from the like media criticism angle on this piece? Well, I mean, the first thing that that just blew my mind is is how little checking into this guy's background anyone seems to have done like i i gave his name a quick google and he came up as appearing on anti-vax podcasts like there's no mention of that in the story at all you know when we look at like also the headlines that we saw on, on initially on the story right and we know on social media a lot of people just read the headline and the initial headlines that were put out there were really really slanted it to make it sound like um you know, it was originally just, oh, this guy says that the pandemic's over in this Hamlet and didn't say anything about, you know, the the commentary from health experts who are like, whoa, 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 this is a bad idea, right? So it's just so many aspects in which this story was reported irresponsibly and then pushed out onto social media. It just blew my mind. Yeah. So let, let's get into the details because the details, again, will blow your hair back. So I'm going to start reading it here. A private blood testing company's claim that the COVID-19 pandemic Series that the COVID-19 pandemic is over, is that's in quote marks, in a northern Alberta community could lull residents into a false sense of security, says an infectious diseases expert. 
More than 1,200 people in the hamlet of Lacrete, 700 kilometers northwest of Edmonton, paid $100 each in mid-December to have their blood tested for antibodies by i Blood Services, a private lab specimen collection company based in Calgary. The tests found antibodies in most of the 991 unvaccinated individuals who were tested. i CEO Mike Kuzmikis, Mike Kuzmikis said he believes... The results show Lacrete is relatively safe from COVID-19. Here's the money quote here that they keep. They put this quote in both the headline and the opening paragraph. Quote, the pandemic is over in Lacrete. They have reached herd immunity, Kazmukas told CBC News in an email last month. Okay, like let's stop it right there. There is no need to just like uncritically repeat that three yeah. times. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, like and and let's remember this is like the one you're reading from now is the updated story so the original version um didn't even preface you know didn't even start with that that statement about an expert's comment on it it just started off with this guy's claims right and we all know anyone who's worked in communications right repetition is the thing that sticks with people you know repetition is the thing that stays in people's heads so continually repeating this unsubstantiated claim and by the way people who have gotten covid get COVID again, right? Like people have gotten reinfected, especially with some of the variants. Like, yeah. Like Yair Bolsonaro has had COVID like eight times. Like, come on. Yeah. no, You, it's, are, you are not immune from COVID if you get COVID. It just, it just blows my mind. Like I, I you know, I'm, I, 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 and there's so little that we know about antibody testing right now and what it really means for long-term immunity. Like this is just this wild claim based on this guy who's a, um, he's a former oil and gas engineer, right? Like he's he's a, not... He is a mechanical engineer without training or expertise in epidemiology, virology, or vaccines, or in fact, really seemingly absent of any medical, formal medical training at all. He, the, the quote here, okay, I got to read this quote. Kuzmikis is a mechanical engineer without training in training or expertise in epidemiology, virology, or vaccines. He said he is interpreting the data the best he can. <laughs> Like, how, how did anyone think like, oh, let's just do a story. You know, there was a, like, I, I actually think this story should have been covered, but it should have been covered from the angle of, you know, unqualified man scams, scientifically uninformed Hamlet. Or and, like, and, and Hamlet that has been like hammered by COVID. Like there's a, there's a, the paragraph where I, I just after I stopped reading, there was like, oh yeah, 89% of the unvaccinated population test positive for so, for the, for the COVID-19 antibody. I mean, and the the numbers we have seen from the other reporting, because there's been lots of reporting on the Crete, because it is this like scofflaw uh, place when it comes to like health health regulations. Like almost everyone in the Crete has gotten COVID, and that's because they don't believe in vaccines or masking or distancing or any type of public health measures because they don't believe that like COVID is real. Yeah, or or they believe that God's going to save them. Like it's just a weird belief that that you know. And my my perspective on that is always like. Yeah, well, you know, that's why, you know, if you believe in God, maybe you might also believe that that's why we have vaccine technology and why we have this scientific knowledge. But, uh, you know, it just, it, the people there have been so hard hit. And then to give people on top of it kind of a false sense of security that now they're all going to be safe, which means that even any precautions that people might have been taking, they might be dropping now. And they also got, all of these people to pay a hundred bucks each mm -hmm. to, to, to get this test. So, you know, however many people in the Hamlet, like he, 
you walked away with a pretty good profit off this little venture. 991 times 100. Yeah. Is uh, $99,000. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure it didn't cost him $99,000 to... Yeah, we don't know what his what his uh yeah what what percentage he's making on that, but I don't imagine his tests came to ninety nine thousand dollars. Like the confidence to to go to go, to one just say out loud to the public as like as a mechanical engineer quote they've developed underlying T cell memory and they don't have to worry about it. Like what the fuck are you talking? About? Like how one how do you say that out loud? And then two as a reporter how do you just like repeat that? Uh, like that's the it's it's like all of his stuff is up high in the story. All of his quotes are just like presented, and then it's like okay, then we go to you know, infectious disease experts, Doctor Lenora Saxinger, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Doctor Saxinger, who's you know who's been really involved with the the Alberta COVID response. You know, she's the co chair of the the AHS scientific advisory, right? <clears throat> you know, she's she you know so they do go to her, and that's really mm-hmm. important. But they go to her after. First, all these claims are made. And we know, you know, you went to journalism school. You know how far a lot of people ever read into an article. You know, by the time you get a few paragraphs in, a lot of people have just absorbed the first part and they're they're not going to finish this thing. You know, so so they're not even a lot of people aren't even going to get to Dr. Saxoner's comments. Yeah. And then we we get a couple of quotes from Dr. Lenore Saxter saying, you know, things you would expect, you know, this is this is not equivalent to being vaccinated. Infection early on and reinfection seemed rare, but now it is common. Infection alone is not good protection. Uh, and then we get to some more fun Lacrete facts, which I am I am here for. Only 35% of the eligible population in the surrounding county or health region. Uh, have been immunized with two doses again, like the lowest in the province, probably one of the lowest in the country. Uh, the uh, the I Blood Services was engaged to do the testing by the Lacrete Chamber of Commerce, um, and the testing, you know, where you had to pay a hundred dollars each, that was advertised by the chamber to the residents of Lacrete. Residents were asked to sign up and bring hundred dollars cash to their appointments, according to the chamber's social media posts. Like, again incredible like this didn't just happen this happened with the like the town's chamber of commerce like blessing and like by using their platform and their infrastructure to get more people to take the test yeah so you've got all these people who are in this position of authority now right community leadership saying oh yeah this is a good idea you should go do this and i'm just gonna say like we don't know what antibody testing means like we don't actually know how much immunity people have from antibodies, you know, and and the testing. Like I'm a participant in a research study uh, on antibodies, and they're super super clear with us um, as participants. So so I go every few months to get my blood taken. They they check it for antibodies. Now that we're vaccinated, they also check for vaccine antibodies because those are separate. So I know that I have vaccine antibodies and not COVID antibodies from like infection. But they're really, really careful to caution people that just because you have antibodies doesn't mean that you're safe from COVID, right? It just it just blows me away that people are, you know, that, that you've got leadership in a community fueling this kind of misrepresentation of, of what antibody testing even tells you. And it's it's not just that, but like, okay, I'm, I'm just doing some scrolling and some clicking, but the you have to get far down into the story to get the quote that says 
Saxinger said it's unclear what can be learned from the results provided by i blood services. Yeah, I mean, there's there's these fancy looking graphs that got included, I think, with this story. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's these charts. Yeah. Yeah. They, they don't tell you anything. They don't, you know, in this presumption that people who have, you know, test, especially there's some people who test to very, very low levels of antibodies, like what that even means, you know, it just, yeah. it, it looks great, right? It looks very sciencey, but it, what it means. You have to get 1500 words into the story. You have to scroll by these, like these, these official looking like chart things to get to the experts saying, yeah, it's unclear what any of this means. <laughs> like, yeah. And it, it should have been led like this. The thing is, when I think about how this story should have been structured, like every single claim that they might have printed that this guy made, the counterpoint should have been printed alongside it, right? Like I, I get that CBC has this sort of, we got to be balanced to whatever perspective on things, but you can include the counterpoints closely so that people can understand the debunking as they read through the story rather than this sort of chunked up thing that doesn't get you to the actual scientific commentary until most people have probably tuned out. You know, yeah. 1,500 words in, a lot of people are done reading by then. Yeah, and it goes, it's like a long story. It's like probably closer to 2,500 words. And it's like they're getting him, they're getting his thoughts on like public health restrictions. And it's like, what the fuck? Again, you there you are under no obligation to provide this person a platform uh you know you can report report on it sure i mean i think it's news that this fucking weird ass community that hates uh following public health restrictions you know paid a hundred thousand dollars to get you know a bunch of people tested but uh like you do not have to repeat his claims that like he thinks it's it's been two years there needs to be a different approach to how to get out of this pandemic it's like what the fuck would you know about it buddy <laughs> yeah like how is this guy any in any way inform you know like qualified to comment on where we should be at with public health restrictions i mean you might as well print my opinion in the story for all that it matters in fact maybe more because i've actually you know presented peer-reviewed work on COVID-19 policy, but even then, like, I'm a policy nerd. I'm not a medical expert. I'm not a health expert. I don't do public health. Like, he's no more qualified than I am to comment on this stuff. And yet it's being printed like he's an authority somehow on whether we should be opening up. And a fun fact I discovered while doing the research for this story is that a conservative activist uh, who some of you might know, he's, he hasn't been in the in the kind of headlines recently. I don't know how connected he is to the UCP, but uh, Peter Polarski was doing uh, PR work for i and And really, I also just want to take a minute to talk about Lecrete. Because again, Lecrete is the like white hot glowing orb of like everything that is fucked up about this province's response to the pandemic. And like, Literally, all you, all I'm going to be doing is like going over headlines and stories that that show up when you when you put the words Lacrete Alberta into like a Google News search, but it is it's bad. Okay, so like last month, like literally 30 days ago, CBC National had like a four minute piece, you know, inside the community with Alberta's lowest vaccination rate, and it's by Paige Parsons, the same person who wrote this story, and it's honestly it's quite good. They interview a person, a member of the community, a Mennonite who. Uh, and a lot of the people who live in, in Lacrete and area are Mennonites. 
uh, he's a person who like wears a mask and got vaccinated and takes the public health restrictions seriously. And he is like essentially like shunned in his community. Um, you know, one thing that actually came up in the, the CBC reporting on it is that the $100 payment that Jason Kenney introduced to, to ostensibly try and get people to take the shot actually made people actually made people more leery of getting the shot in this community. Yeah, I mean, when you've got people who have a distrust of government, right, which it seems like a lot of people in this community do, and then you introduce, oh, we'll give you money to get these thing and people thing, this thing, and people are already suspicious, and they're like, well, why are you trying to bribe me to take this shot now? Like that's that's how people at, from that kind of perspective are going to interpret being offered a hundred dollars for it. Exactly, exactly. Right. There's another story, December thirteenth, again published by uh, CBC. How neighbors and communities are divided over COVID nineteen in this rural Alberta county. Again, focused on the Crete. Uh, and of course, then you see the consequences of this stuff. There's an AHS press release from October 21st, 2021, hours temporarily reduced at uh, Lacrete Ambulatory Care Center, which uh, is terrible and, you know, which we saw a lot of that happening in a lot of different places across the province, but unsurprising that it would also happen in Lacrete. Uh, something in your wheelhouse, uh, Bridget, Lacrete schools exempt from learning order. Do you remember when this story came out in oh, May? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It just... Yeah, it- so- so essentially, like the ent- almost the entire province went uh, like shut down schools and went to online learning, and Lacrete was like, nah. Yeah, no, and and the thing that like, I mean, first of all, being exempted from it from it somehow because people in your community are more COVID denialist than elsewhere in the province just seems absurd to me, right? Like you've got you know, oh, good. So you've got people who don't even believe this disease is real. And now we're going to exempt them from the public health order that's supposed to protect people. But also, like, to go back to their ambulatory care center, and it's a thing that we saw in a few communities across the province, but Lacrete was one of them, is one of the things that happened is with the vaccine mandates through through AHS um, for healthcare workers is facilities in some of these communities couldn't get enough staff because vaccine denialism in the community meant that they didn't actually have enough vaccinated workers to keep facilities open. But rather than figure out a different solution to it, the response was to um, pull back on some of the vaccine mandates. Right? So, mm-hmm. so again, it's like, the, it's like the decision to exempt the schools rather than, you know, continuing to use the policy levers to maintain public safety, you see a rejection of public health orders being caused to, oh, we're going to drop this this part of the order. Then we're just oh, okay. People here don't like this rule. We're just going to get rid of the rule. Like it, it's it's a completely absurd approach to to how you manage the society. Yeah, uh, published October thirtieth, twenty twenty one. Headline: uh, Bakeries, diners, and bars serve up defiance to Alberta's vaccine passport program. Uh, CBC writes another story where Lacrete makes an appearance. Uh, some guy who runs a coffee house is like, no, I won't be doing it. Uh, this is an interesting one. Canada Post Canada Post Corporation shuffles vaccinated workers to cover staff shortages. This is from December 20th. Uh, it's published in the local paper, The Record Gazette. I'm going to quote it here. Fairview, Wanham, and Falher have all had uh, Canada Post associates. I don't know what this acronym means. Something, something Canada Post members covering in the Lacrete Post Office for the past month in order to keep the office open, she said because many of Lacrete's employees have chosen to quit or retire due to the vaccine issue. The shortages in staff have also resulted in counter services being reduced. 
Yeah, so this is the same problem that they had with the health with health facilities there, right? Like federal because um, you know Canada Post brought in a vaccine mandate for postal workers, and now you're seeing the same thing happening in that community again, right? So it's just this like deeply entrenched refusal to do the bare minimum to take care of other people. And finally, uh, April 10th, 2021, this is published on CTV News, Alberta Health Services vehicles pelted with eggs. Uh, Again, this is four vehicles owned by AHS and marked as such were pelted with eggs. Uh, They were up there to set up the launch of some like random healthcare thing that I've never heard of. Uh, And apparently there was like some rumor circulating in the community that they were there to like forcibly vaccinate everyone or something. Um, Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Lacrete. Oh, uh, Lacrete. And it it's it's a really absurd situation. And and part of what makes it absurd is, you know, Lacrete Lacrete is a um predominantly Mennonite community, right? Um and there's this weird resistance there and it, it's it reflects the resistance we've seen in some um other like very conservative predominantly Mennonite communities in in southern Manitoba. But the thing is, is the, the Mennonite Central Committee, now now Mennonites are not like Catholics, they don't have a Pope, right? But but there is the Mennonite Central Committee, which kind of is an organizing body for um, Mennonites and other Mennonite scholars and stuff who've said there is no religious justification for vaccine refusal in Mennonite belief or tra- tradition. And in fact, um, if you take a look at, you know, the language from the Mennonite Central Committee, uh, not only are they encouraging people to participate in um, vaccination themselves, but also are major advocates for the, you know, the TRIPS waivers that would allow co- countries around the world, you know, who don't have vac- vaccine access right now to have better vaccine access to to waive the the patents on the vaccines so they could be produced. And this is, you know, these are both coming from a Mennonite perspective. And that's where the behavior of people in communities like Lacrete is really kind of absurd. Because if you think about that idea of, you know, caring for your community, caring for your neighbors, which is a really strong Mennonite value, it, it it's very confusing to then see people um, resisting the basic things that they might need to do to keep their neighbors safe. Yeah, I mean, I try to approach situations like this, you know, with empathy and an open mind. And like, I'm trying to understand where people are coming from. But it is really hard to just not look at what is happening in the community of Lacrete and not conclude that there is a huge majority of people there who are selfish assholes who are not interested in keeping each other safe and other people safe. Well, and I, I'm not sure about that. Um you know, there, there probably are some, uh, but I think also what can happen, you've got a, a small, fairly isolated community, um, likely a lot of people in that community because of conservative religious beliefs are, you know, maybe not engaging as much with, with mainstream media. They may not be, you know, I don't know what people's internet use is like in that community or whatever, but what can happen when you have kind of a very insular community is if you get misinformation that starts to spread in a community like that, um, it can spread really quickly and it can become the predominant opinion, right? So I don't doubt that there are a lot of people in that community whose sincerely held belief is 
that the vaccine is dangerous and it will kill them, right? Um, whose sincerely held beliefs are that COVID isn't real, right? And it's not because they're jerks. It's that they're living in a circumstance where they are not, um, they're not getting good information. And then the social context that they're in is reinforcing those beliefs and those, those behaviors, right? Like that's the social norm. That's what they're hearing from everyone around them. And then you see what happened to that guy who stepped outside that and, you know, the social pressure on him, um, you know, and actually the, you know, the being shunned by his community. And then you can think, even if you're somebody who isn't sure about it, you're likely to go along just because you're looking at the rest of your community's behavior. Right. So like, I, I just, I think we always, yeah, there are people who are unvaccinated because they're jerks. Um, but I think we also need to be really compassionate towards people who are in sort of these really insulated communities and are getting so much misinformation that they're, they, they're not getting access to what's really going on in the world. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree we do need to approach this situation from one with empathy. It's just, it's really fucking hard. And also, like, I agree that, like, these people have clearly had their brains, like, melted by the internet, right? And, like, and that this this misinformation that is circulating is, like, because the community is, you know, in 630 kilometers northwest of Edmonton, kind of in the middle of nowhere, not a huge population, fairly isolated. Uh, yeah, like, the, the, the misinformation spreads fast. And that's when you get a situation where, like, a bunch of AHS, like, SUVs get pelted with eggs, you know? Well, and I feel terrible for those workers. Like, how frightening to be going in to set up, set up a, you know, what's actually a really good program for, for rural communities, right? The Connect Care program offers a lot of access for people. And going in to do something that's going to really help and support that community and having people think you're there to forcibly vaccinate them right? and throw eggs at you, like what that must be like to to be driving through a little town in your your vehicle thinking you're just going to work and suddenly people are are egging you i'm gonna guess that they probably had to leave town yeah well that is the happy note that we are ending it on if you uh i would recommend maybe not visiting lacrete until we have a little more uh of a of a handle on the COVID 19 pandemic <laughs> um Bridget, uh, let's leave it there. What's the best way for kind of people to follow you along on the internet? Uh, you know, probably the best way for people to find me is just on Twitter. Um, it's at Bridget Sterling, B-R-I-D-G-E-T-S-E-I-R-L-I-N-G, because nobody can spell my name. Um, and I'm I'm on Twitter. I'm a loudmouth uh, even more now that I'm not a politician and I can have all the opinions that I want. Uh, so that's probably the best place to follow me um, if you're looking for what I'm what I'm doing out in the world. So. Awesome. Yes. Follow Bridget's Twitter account. It's very good. Also, uh, you should also be like Bridget in that you should also be one of the 500 or so supporters who financially kick in a little bit every month to help keep this little independent media project going. Uh, there is a link in the show notes. You can go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, you know, put in your credit card, five, 10, $15 a month, whatever you can afford. Uh, Jim and I really appreciate it. Also, if you have any notes, thoughts, comments, I am very easy to get a hold of. I am also on Twitter far too much at, uh, at Duncan Kinney. And you can reach me by email at Duncan K at progressalberta.ca. Thanks to Jim Story for the edit. Thanks to Cosmic Famu Communist for our amazing theme. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>